0: Let me, uh, let me just pray for us and we'll go ahead and dive into our text. We have a lot that we want to cover today, so let me just pray for us. Well, Father, once again in Your grace, Lord, You've woken us up, Lord, and given us another day to glorify You, Lord. May we find joy in this day that You've created. May we use it for Your glory, Lord. May You use it for our good. Lord, bless us, Lord, as we open up Your Word. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us, Lord, in, in so many ways, with so much detail and clarity, Lord. So we praise you for this, Lord. May we, may we take your word and apply it and live it out and um, and not be afraid to do so, Lord, even as we will see some of the things that your word says for us to do is, is very countercultural, Lord, and is not uh, with the flow of the world, Lord. So give us grace, Lord, give us discernment. Lord, and give us faith to believe You and to glorify You in Your Word. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you want to open up your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. The goal from here on out, uh, brothers and sisters, is to cover at least a chapter a week. Um, a chapter a week, which is a, is a for me a near impossibility. So I prayed for a miracle. So we'll see if we can, can work through at least a chapter a week. If we do that, we'll be done by Christmas. So that's kind of the game plan. We'll see what happens. Um, it, it's really all good. We don't have any deadlines, but that's kind of just um, the kind of time frame we want to spend with First Timothy. So what did we see last week? Well, last week we finally finished up um, chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul from the very beginning was addressing the problem in the church of false teaching and false teachers who had risen up in the church. And now the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 is actually going to turn to address another issue um, of the church and another issue pertaining to the doctrine of the church. And he's now going to address some of the aspects of the roles of men and women in the church the roles of men and women in the church and so this discussion is just simply another part of what 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that Paul set out to instruct Timothy about in 1 Timothy 3:14 through 15 Paul said there I'm writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long but in case I'm delayed I write so that you will know how one is to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. So the Apostle Paul has set out to Timothy to instruct him on how to conduct church and how to conduct himself in the church. And so all of this instruction is just part of that. Um, So if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's only 15 verses long. Um, And so here's the layout. Basically, in the first seven verses, the Apostle Paul is going to set out kind of like a foundation, a theological foundation for this command that he's going to give in verse 8. He's going to give a command directly to the to the men of the church um, as it pertains to their leading of the prayers in the church. So the first seven verses are just leading up and laying a foundation for that command. Then in, in verse 9, in verses 9 through 15, the Apostle Paul is going to address specifically the women. He's going to address the ladies of the church and uh, address some of the concerns that he has as it pertains to the women in the worship service of the church. So let's dive in. Let's dive into the text here. Let's jump into verse one and see how we can do. Paul says in verse one, "First of all, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So, Paul kicks off this next section. He says, first of all, first of all, prayer. First of all, prayer. Now, I thought that's significant that of all the things the Apostle Paul could begin speaking about, he wants to speak about prayer. And so from that we can just we can see the significance and the importance of prayer. If you even just do a cursory study of the book of Acts, if you just do a, an overview of the book of Acts, you'll see how, um, how, how prominent and how significant the role in the grace of prayer was in the early church. You see how much the church prayed in all circumstances with all different kinds of prayers. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants to continue in the church. And so here Paul says to offer all these different kinds of prayers, and that's all that list is. It's the different kinds of prayers. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. All these different kinds of prayers, Paul says, are to be offered for all different kinds of men. Even kings and even those ruling authorities, Paul says. Now, if you're in any sense familiar with the Roman government during the first century and its Um, and its interaction with Christians in particular during the first century, you'll understand why this may have been such a necessary instruction that the Apostle Paul was, was giving to the church. He was reminding them that they must be praying even for their kings and ruling authorities, even for Nero, for instance, even for Pontius Pilate. They're to be praying for these men. Even for King Herod and these types of people, Paul's reminding um, the church to pray for these types of people. So, that's what we're getting in the first seven verses here. Um, Paul is going to give two reasons for why the church must pray for all men, um, including authorities such as kings and, and rulers, over them. The first reason is down in verse 2. He said... So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So that's the first reason that these prayers for authorities are to be given. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, what I don't think the Apostle Paul is saying, and what I don't think his main concern is for the church, is that the church would just be given a simple life of of ease and relaxation, Right That's not his ultimate goal for the church. It, it really hasn't been for Jesus as either for, for the church. The main goal is not just for ease of life. I don't think that's why he's uh, speaking the way he does. I think the hope is, is that the church will be given um, freedom from any um, unnecessary conflicts with the government or the people of, of Ephesus, so that the gospel itself might be freely able to be spread. And that there wouldn't be this, this unnecessary opposition um, with the government, with the governing rulers, or with the, the people of Ephesus that might suppress the spread of the go- of the gospel. Now, the second reason that the apostle Paul says that the church should be praying for kings and all those who are in authority um, is a well known well known text to all of us Calvinists and it is something that we'll, that we'll get into. This is the second reason that Paul says that prayer should be offered for all kinds of men. He says in verse 3, he says, because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. So, if you're not aware of why that text is an issue for us Calvinists, um, maybe I can just lay out the, the the perceived problem for you, and maybe we can work through it together. Um, what verse 4 says here, it says that God desires all men to be saved. If God desires all men to be saved... so. If God desires all men to be saved without exception, meaning if God desires every man who's ever lived past, present, future, um, all men without exception. If If he desires all men without exception to be saved, and yet we know that not all men are saved, meaning that even though God desires the salvation of all and all aren't saved, how does that not contradict other verses in the Bible that says whatever God desires He obtains? For instance, let me read just some of these really quickly. Psalm chapter one fifteen uh, verse three says, "But our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases." Psalm one thirty five six says, "Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth." Isaiah forty six ten, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, <coughs> my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, God says. And then, of course, he, lastly, Ephesians 1, 11, Paul says, um, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. See, these these verses that really emphasize God's sovereignty and His ability to to perform and to work out and to accomplish everything that He desires. Whatever God desires, it says um, He works these things out according to His desires. So, if that is true, but yet, as verse 4 said in 1 Timothy 2, if God desires all men to be saved... And if God actually accomplishes everything He desires, but yet not all are saved, how is that not a contradiction? How is that not a problem um, in, in 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 just the Bible being consistent in what it presents to us as far as God's desires, what He's able to accomplish if He desires, and yet the fact that it says He desires all men to be saved, but we know that all men are not saved. So... Which is it? Does God accomplish all He desires, or does He not? How would you How would you address maybe that apparent conflict in First Timothy two, Chris? Like, how would you How would you answer that apparent contradiction?
1: Well, I believe that this all people is encompassing um, people groups, um, Jews, Gentiles, okay. those in high position, low position,
0: um, kind of like what you said earlier. Right? I kind of slipped it in already, didn't I? Um, I kind of showed my hand a little bit in how I read the text. Brother Mike.
2: Well, this is kind of, this terrible. It's kind of like traffic signs. We're there for our safety. Okay. And it's up to us whether to accept that and obey it or not. Because, like, if you go on one way streets and on there one way, otherwise things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Not in your favor, of course. Very negative. So, if we go, who knows the might of God? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh so God can put all these things out there. But it is his desire that all men be saved, mm-hmm. but who is going to hear the calling? Mm-hmm. Who's going to heed to that calling of salvation? That's entirely up to us.
0: All right. So 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 that's that's the question though. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the question because like Isaiah forty six mm-hmm. says, He accomplishes all his good pleasure. So if he does have a desire that all would be saved, he says he accomplishes whatever his desire is. So there must be something, something else. Who's the all? Who's the all I think is of course what. Ryan, you want to give it? A-
2: well, I don't think I don't think this is that's necessarily even what it's referring to necessarily here. It'd be the same question: Does he desire that we sin? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, realistically, it's the exact same question. Mm-hmm. And if he, if the answer is yes, then that's not a holy God that he would desire that we sin. If the answer is no then why doesn't he stop it all from happening? It's just different facets of his will, different types of will.
0: I think that's a very legitimate answer. There's things he's
2: ordained and things he's decreed. and
0: So maybe Paul is assuming, right, that the that the church and the readers and that us, that we would understand that God has different aspects. There's different aspects to his will. he Just as there is for us. So the theologians divided these into God's decretive will, like use the word decree. What God has willed, um, decretively in, in the sense that he's, he's um, planned it, purposed it, and he's made sure that that's going to happen in, in how he created it and what he's done. He decreed it, and so it's going to happen. That's one aspect of his will. But they have another category of it, God's moral will, meaning um, in that sense, according to that will, God does not desire that anybody sins. God desires that all be saved, right? It's just a different kind of will. The classic example I like to give for that is as parents, do you want to spank your children? Do you like to, to cause physical pain to your children? Do you, do you want to do that? Well, in one sense, no, we don't want to do that. We hate to do that. But why do we do it? Because we have another will that overrides that will that we know it's good for them, and so, and so we do it. You see, so even we in of ourselves recognize that we have different aspects of our wills, different kinds of wills. Let me get Marlene. I saw Marlene... Raise her hand. Marlene, what's up, sister? Uh, the Lord is
2: not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance.
0: Mm. Right. <laughs> Second Peter yeah. 3. Yeah. And yet we
2: know not everybody gets saved.
0: And we know that not everybody gets saved. So, right. So, I think going to what Keith... <laughs> let's, let's go back to the, to the text here. Um, because I think even in our text here... There, there's a pretty conclusive evidence of how we can determine what Paul means when he says that God desires all men to be saved. And, and Chris, I think, from the very get-go, kind of was was on it. I think if you just start at the beginning of his discussion, here at verse um, 2, for instance, who, is, who are all of these prayers supposed to be made for? He, he began by saying, for kings... And for all who are in authority. So, from the very beginning, the Apostle Paul has been setting forth categories of people. So he's saying all kinds of people in that sense. And that's really what his argument is, if you think about it. He's he's making sure that the church prays for all kinds of people. Don't not pray for kings. Don't not pray for those who are in authority over you. And so... That's the train of thought that follows through as he says, God desires all men to be saved. All men, even kings and even those who are in authority, right? Different kinds of of people God has determined to save. So I think exegetically, as far as like making an exegetical argument, that would be the, the, the clearest thing to point to is that even in the context, Paul's not speaking of all men in the sense of without... Without exception, he's not saying, right? Make sure to pray for every single person that's ever existed. That's not what he's been asking for. He's saying, make sure to pray for all kinds of people, and don't restrict your prayers based on um, just human categories or or authorities. Wally, do you have something?
2: I was thinking that if he really meant every single person, it would have been better to say he desires that every man be saved, you know, every individual
0: man. Every individual, individual man. man. Right. Yeah. I think, like Chris said, you know, it's all all groups of men. All, yeah, all, all groups. groups of men. I think is is what he's saying, and I, and I would even go along with like what Ryan threw That's always been my natu- my, my natural inclination is that God just has different different um, levels of His will and level, level levels of desire, and maybe here he's he's speaking of that that desire that all men be saved that. Um, Marlene was quoting from Ezekiel. You know, we're, in one sense, God doesn't desire anyone to perish. God doesn't find joy in 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 punishing people, and that's not that that's not um, in one sense a desire of God. Yes, Marshall. Yeah, um, the Lord said uh, that you uh, know, calling of a chosen and. Uh, the the, the the road is broad,
1: you know, and many choose that, mm-hmm. and
2: the narrow road few, you know, uh, few chose to, to go, you know. So yeah. you know, it's like the the uh, the choice that we have.
0: If we make that choice, then God is pleased, mm-hmm. you know. It's yeah. with that, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm just... That's, those two scriptures is what I'm looking at. You right. Know? Right. Yeah, that seems to be the outworking of whatever God's decretive will was, is what we will choo- end up choosing. You know, that definitely definitely comes into play, no doubt about it. Um, so, le- So let's keep moving, right? Because I know we all love this discussion. <laughs> but for the sake of getting through... Everything Paul's saying here, because Paul wasn't, I don't think Paul was engaging in that debate, you know, as he said these words. He's making a very general statement here. Um, and, and what he's been saying is that to make sure that the church prays for all men, but now in verse 8, after, after making this argument, he's now going to instruct the men in particular into why or, 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 or how we are to be praying for all men. How are you to be praying for all men? Verse eight says, "Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and dissension." And the ESV uh, translates dissension as quarreling, without wrath and quarreling. So, first, just notice, um, I think that it's that it's significant that Paul instructs the men here in particular. He, he speaks directly to the men in particular, on how to make these prayers. Now, of course, I don't believe that um, this is to say that the women weren't praying in church. Um, I think there's, there's clear evidence that the women did pray uh, with the men in the church. But I think as we're going to see, the men are singled out in the sense in that the men are the ones leading um, the church's worship, which would include corporate prayer, and as certainly... Um, we'll see next week, chapter 3 makes that very clear, that the men are given the role of leading uh, worship. And so um, the Apostle Paul directs his, his instructions to the men in particular. But you have to think, why, why does Paul need to address this um, issue here? Why is he even giving instructions to the men about their their demeanor and attitude when they pray? Um, He's he's telling them make sure you pray with holy hands. He's saying pray without wrath and without dissension. Why why is he even saying this? Well, he doesn't elaborate right here in this verse, but what are the contextual clues that might give us a a hint of why the apostle Paul is having to discuss this at all? I've thought of a couple options. Um I don't know that I thought about them. I probably read them in a commentary, but I think these are the two Most obvious options of why Paul's having to tell the men, make sure to pray with holy hands. Make sure to pray without wrath. Make sure to pray without quarreling. Why do they need to be told this? I mean, do you have an idea?
2: Well, my my first inclination might be if he's specifying earlier to make sure praying for kings, that they're under kings that aren't necessarily like-minded. So he doesn't want you to have a hard heart when praying for them.
0: That's that's the first thing that I thought. I thought maybe maybe they were praying. Maybe they were only praying like imprecatory psalms, right? Prayers against these kings, right? And, and, and that's not what the apostle Paul just said that he wants the, that that they're to be praying for the kings. He says they're to be praying for their salvation, not imprecatory, right? They're not to be praying with that kind of anger, that kind of whether righteous or not. In that sense, you know. So that's that's one thing I definitely thought of, which is maybe even closer to the context. Um, what's another option? I thought, turn to turn to uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Because we know that the context of all of chapter 1 has been other problems in the church service. It's been this, the false teaching that's been going on. These false teachers are, are teaching um, in such a way that it has led to an unhealthy church culture. Notice um, what it says here as um, the Apostle Paul describes these, these false teachers who are teaching error. Maybe verse 4. He says, These people are conceited, they understand nothing, but they have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arises envy, strife, abusive, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men. So you see that just where these false teachers are coming from, they just have an unhealthy um, propensity towards debate and finding conflict and finding problems. And they're just stirring up all of these kinds of, of unhelpful controversies, right? Instead of, as we already looked at, instead of edifying the church, they're just stirring up problems and stirring up. Um, debate. And so Paul says, what is the end of all that? Well, the end of all that is in the church you're going to have strife, abusive language, suspicions, constant friction between men. Maybe all that that's going on in the church is why Paul has to say, men, pray with holy hands, without wrath, without quarreling. Maybe the apostle Paul's calling these people to um, resolve their disputes through maybe even as we looked at church discipline, which actually is, is happening in this church, and to come to a place where you can forgive one another and pray um, with a clear conscience before God. Um, so whatever the reason, the Apostle Paul wants all of that bitterness, all of that debate to be done with and to be settled. Um, I think the universal application of all this for all of us is that we all need to remove any bitterness or any wrath or any anger or malice that we have towards one another before we pray. Or your prayers will be hindered. You see, it's, it's interesting that um, in Ephesians chapter 4, when it talks about, um, what's the language he used there? Grieving the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. Having The very first verse before that in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 is talking about having bitterness and wrath. In your heart, that's what grieves the Holy Spirit, and that's what will hinder our prayers. So, yes, I mean,
1: I think also that, that there's a maybe an exegetical connection between verse 1 and, uh, and verse 8. Mm-hmm. The, the, I think the, the, the carnal tendency of every person, every you know, men and women, would be to <clears throat> fight against our rulers and those in authority, you know. So, right. Uh, by verse eight, I think he puts us in a submissive, humble posture yep. instead of fighting the government. Right? Yep. Instead of taking an attitude of a revolution, you know, we should be, you know, humble and pray and, and <coughs> wrath, whether it's towards the government or towards one another. You know what I, mean? so I think yeah, it's yeah. Be
0: a He even uses the word Thanksgiving should be part of our prayers for our leaders, even <coughs> sinful leaders. Thanksgiving gets tough. That's a tough one, certainly. Yes sir.
2: So in in regards to to hindering your prayers, I think it's the the, where I've seen people um, get off track on this is where they think that it's that their heart is gonna have to do with how God responds to their prayers as opposed to their ability to align with God's will. Um, Mm -hmm. and that isn't the way in which it would hinder the prayer. It's not as much that, you know, God's not gonna do it because because my my heart, but it was I I can't line up to his will with things.
0: Right. Yeah, if you have bitterness in your heart. Right. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. So, so yeah. So that. So I think we can all relate to that, right? That we we understand how that works. How right? It would. It doesn't affect the bitterness in our hearts. Doesn't affect our union with Christ. But as we've been talking about in John Owen's study, our communion with God is definitely affected by (coughs) wrath and sin and bitterness. And so we want to rid ourselves all of that to commune with God as far as prayer is concerned. So let's keep moving. Um, Because now there's the the next transition, which the NASB actually separates, beginning at verse 9. Beginning at verse 9, the Apostle Paul is going to transition to address the women in particular. And in verse 9, he says, Likewise, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So, the Apostle Paul's first concern with the women in the church here is their adornment, how they're um, dressing themselves, their, their attire, and how they're seeking attractiveness, really is what he's getting at. And he says these things are to be done with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Um, I just thought this was very interesting to me because I know as we normally think of of modesty as concerned with women's clothing, normally we're thinking of things such as making sure that women's clothes are um, not too tight or not too revealing, right, from like a, a, a sensual aspect so that lust isn't um, stirred up from the men. But in this context, it seems as if the Apostle Paul is actually going beyond that. He's going beyond modesty from a from a sensual aspect. He's actually going as far as as talking about um, this extrav- extravagance in dress. Is his concern here with bringing up the word modesty, He's saying not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments? I think maybe the Apostle Paul doesn't um, go into detail as far as the way we normally are addressing modesty, I think, for the most part, because in one sense, I think um, sensual or, or revealing um, issues with women's clothes goes without saying, right? That should go without saying that Christian women are not going to wear clothes that are revealing or sensual and and are, are, are leaving the door open for men to stumble, right? Um, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 tells us that, for Christians, there's not even to be a hint of sexual immorality or or anything, any kind of impurity, he says. So I think that almost goes without saying, unfortunately, we have to say it sometimes still in our churches, but um, I think as far as this is concerned, that's not what Paul's getting at. Paul's actually restricting um, extravagance in the women's dresses. Now, when we get to chapter 6, Paul actually has... Several things to say to this church about money. Apparently, there, was, there was, was many rich people in the church here at Ephesus. He's going to have other things to say about, about money later. So obviously, there was a lot of money, and that was an issue. And historically, um, you can find pictures from um, the Roman civilizations at this time and the way that these women actually um, displayed their dress, just very extravagantly, with crazy kinds of braids, with pearls intertwined them it was just a total it was a total look at me look how much money I have let me show you by what I wear kind of situation going on here so the Apostle Paul is saying um, he's actually putting a restriction on these on this type of of dress but of course I wouldn't say that I don't believe that Paul's putting a wholesale restriction on on jewelry per se right I mean that is a curse a straightforward <clears throat> reading that might Make you think that's what he's saying. Uh, I don't think that's what he's saying. I mean my wife, I still buy my wife um, jewelry, so I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what the Apostle Paul is addressing is that um, to the women, they're not to find their, they're not to find their contentment, they're not to find their, their worth or their satisfaction or their beauty in, in their outward attire. The Apostle Paul, they're to to find their beauty in what they do. You see, they're they're to find their beauty in what they do. And you see that clearly by verse 10, where he explains this little explanatory clause. He says, um, not by all this kind of dress, this fancy dress. He says, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. You see, so this is what makes... A Christian woman beautiful. This is what a Christian woman is to be um, concerned about and wanting to adore herself with is not superficial outward clothing and these types of issues. But as Paul says, uh, what makes a woman beautiful is good works, good works and serving in the church. Yes, sir.
2: Um. This I was thinking may also have to reference because um, uh, very especially in the Jewish culture, uh, how much you have and your your prosperity had to do with how close you were to God, how blessed you were, how a of sin you have. Sure. Um, and then yeah. re- I was thinking verse ten went to that pretty precisely, but um, yeah, it, it might have had to do with uh, with that.
0: Yeah, thinking because you had a lot of money, you know, that God you have the favor of God upon you, and so you want everybody to know that you have the favor of God on you, and that's still relevant to, for today. Um, people that seems to be a big teaching these days is by your prosperity you can um, see how God is is favoring you and blessing you. Um, yeah, so godliness is what makes a woman beautiful to God and to into godly Christian men, right? Godly Christian men should be looking for the women who are who are serving the Lord faithfully and and are spending their lives in good works. Um, so let, let's continue here because the Apostle Paul um, continues with his, all these counter-cultural aspects of, of Christianity. Because notice verse 11, Paul here is now going to go on to describe um, one, one facet of these good works. One way in which a woman can make a proper claim to godliness. And it's found in the way that she fulfills her role in, in God-given calling in the church. Verse 11 a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. But to remain quiet. Now that's a, that's a tough verse, isn't it, in our uh, culture these days with um, I think predominantly just the rise of feminism has, has made these things um, hard pills to swallow. So let me just put forward first, what the text is not saying, because I don't think this is a, again, a wholesale restriction. I don't think that, um, the apostle Paul is calling for women to be completely quiet from the time that they walk through the doors to the time that they leave, right? I don't think that's what the apostle Paul is getting at here, but the emphasis is on the quietness. He uses the word in verses 11 and 12, um, there to remain quiet, to learn in, in quietness. And Why don't I believe, if that's what the text says, why don't I believe that this is a wholesale restriction of women speaking in church? Well, because the Apostle Paul himself gives us several different instances of where women are to be speaking in the church. So we know that the Apostle Paul is not conflicting with himself. So here's some quick examples of of how we know this is not a wholesale silence of women in the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Um, the Apostle Paul tells us that in Corinth the women were praying and even prophesying whatever uh, we're going to define that as. But the women were praying and prophesying in the church. Titus chapter 2, a very well-known passage for most... Turn to Titus chapter 2. Let's look at that one because here, again, the Apostle Paul is, is not commanding silence, but actually commanding that the women do speak. That they do speak in... Um, we see this at beginning in verse three, for instance, where the older, more mature women are told not to be silent when it comes to teaching other women. Titus chapter two, verse three, says, "Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. Well there, maybe there's another way in which they are to remain silent, not to gossip, he says, um, "Nor enslaved to much wine, and they 're to be teaching what is good." That's why I say this is an exception to the women being silent because he's telling them, no, you can't teach without speaking. So here, the Apostle Paul is, in, is encouraging women to actually speak and teach in the church. And notice the content for you women. What, what are you to be making sure that you are teaching? Teaching what is good, he says, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. I don't get that one. You know? Why would they need to be reminded to love? We're so easy to love. Um, I get the next one. I get the next one to love their children. I can see why we need to be reminded of that. Verse 5, teach the women to be sensible, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. That's my phone, I think. I don't know. Amber alert, amber alert. So the reason I read that is just to to emphasize to you that I think this, as I said, it's not a wholesale silencing of women. No, they are to be speaking. But as we see here um, and as we're going to see, um, the the, the quietness is in uh, one certain realm, not in all realms. So let's see here. Um, in verse 12, what's the nature of this quiet submissive, submissiveness, submissiveness that is required? What's the nature of the quietness? Because Paul's answer is twofold. Two aspects to it. Verse 12, he says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So that's the, that's the requirement, that's the restriction of this... Uh, I got it too. Um, that's that's the that's the restriction is that women aren't to be doing these things over men, right? We we understand that. So the two aspects of that are, are teaching, which I would just put preaching with that preaching or teaching. As we're going to see next week, is a, is a role, is a duty given to the men of the church. That's what chapter three is going to explain to us, as well as the second aspect exercising authority over men. Um, obviously, chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to go on to explain how that role, a role of oversight, the role of overseer-elder is um, a ministry given to men. That's the role, that's the job that men have been given in the church. And so, um, in that sense, the Apostle Paul is restricting the women from overseeing men in, in ministry. Now, the, the obvious question is Why? Where does this, I mean, why, why is this the case? Why does the Apostle Paul restrict women in these ways from from teaching and preaching and and overseeing over men? Um, The reason I think it's an obvious question is because I think there's women probably in our church who know the word of God better than I do. There's women in our church who could, I'm sure, could preach better than I do, which is nothing to brag about. But I'm sure that they could. I'm sure that they can speak more articulately and, and, can, and, and can convey truth better than I can. So, so what's the reason? Why, why, why the restriction? Well, that answer by Apostle Paul is also twofold. The Apostle Paul is going to give two reasons why this is the case. And this may not be what you would expect to be Paul's reasoning. Because the Apostle Paul in verse 13 is actually going to argue from the book of Genesis. He's actually going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to say why this is the case. Verse 13, it says, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. That's his reason. The reason is because Adam was created first, then Eve. No further right, explanation. Um, that's what he says. And so what's what's I think is obviously being stated is just uh, just God's created order is speaking something, is actually explaining something and articulating something. The fact that, that God first created Adam and then created Eve, and the Bible even tells us why, for, for the purpose that she would be his helper, right? Not to be his head, but to be his helper. Um, and 1 Corinthians 11 tells us woman was created for man's glory. All of these things is just how God has set out and created um, and ordained uh, the roles of men and women. Yes, Ryan? This way, nobody can ever say it's a cultural issue. I, I think that as well. Like, Paul's arguing not from, right, some sort of um, cultural issue there in Ephesus as to why women aren't to be teaching. No, he's actually basing this on God's creation um, narrative and God's creation um, ordinance. So, yeah, I think that is true. I mean, because that is a common objection, you know. Oh, this must have just been something going on in Ephesus as to why Paul's requiring of this. But, um, no, he argues from the book of Genesis. He's also going to go on to make another argument from the book of Genesis. Notice this in verse 14. um, Why women are not to teach, exercise authority. This is the toughest one. I think, to me, in studying this chapter, this is the toughest verse. It says, and it was not Adam who was deceived... But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, it's time to go to worship, so.
2: Um, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, when you read through the commentators, um, they're, they're trying to figure out in what sense is this an argument, or like what exactly is Paul saying? Because it seems to be his argument is well, Eve was the one deceived, not Adam, right? So therefore, she should not be teaching. And I think that is what he's saying, but he doesn't explain exactly, and I don't think we should speculate too much as far as why that narrative of the fall um, and, and doesn't tell us everything. I think we'd just be um, speculating about how the fact that Eve was deceived um, is revealing facts behind why she wasn't um, made for that leadership role. right? The commentators feel free to get into all kinds of um, uh, of questionings. And, and, and most of it, I don't th- think it's derogatory in any sense. They're just saying, like, woman wasn't created for this role. That wasn't, and we see what happens when she tries to lead, right? It, it leads to problems and leads to error. Yes, Keith? Yeah, but in Genesis, isn't it a
2: level of punishment? I mean, he did, he issued also punishment to man, too. You know, because man will work by the sweat of his brow and all these other things. Isn't this a part of punishment towards the one? No, well, a desire to usurp the role. um, A white woman will strive for her husband. That's
0: not that's not a punishment either. That's a result of the fall, but that's not a punishment. That woman is now the punishment. The problem. The consequence is that woman now has to submit to sinful husband. That's the problem. She's always was to submit. Now it's a problem because now her husband has fallen, and now he's sinful. That's what's so hard. That's this, what...
2: This is
0: actually something good, imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, submission is good. It was God-ordained. That's what he said in verse 13, that Adam was created first, woman for him, right? But now the problem is, because of the fall, because she did not maintain her God-ordained role, she led, Adam followed, Right, followed her right into the sin. Now, because of federal headship, all of mankind has plummeted into... Um, into the worst possible scenario that mankind could find himself in, all because of role reversal, all because the woman led, right? And that's not what God had ordained for her, see? So, yeah, the consequences are are cataclysmic. Um, I just thought, um, how, how important is it then that we maintain our biblical roles and designations well, I think God set forth an example of what happens if you don't in the very first pages of Scripture, right? I think we should heed this warning and and maintain, as the Apostle Paul saying, our our God ordained roles. Uh, we need to learn from their examples. So I know that's a hard verse. Y'all could go read the, the commentaries. Definitely um, are not afraid to to plumb it into the depths of of what's behind that verse. I think it's interesting to study, but. Here the apostle Paul let's end it let's end it as the apostle Paul does on a good note right on a on a good note because Paul's a good preacher he wants to end on a positive note verse 15 he says but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with with self-restraint so that, man this is another tougher I think 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the hardest chapter in the Bible with all of these issues, to, to teach and to fully grasp what's behind some of these things. But this has always been a, a tough verse just because of the language there. The, the NASB translates, translates it, a woman will be preserved. Every other translation translates it like the, like the ESV, a woman will be saved through childbearing. Now, can't you see why that's an awkward statement from the Apostle Paul Is he saying that the one good work that will gain a woman's salvation is childbearing? Is he now contradicting everything the Apostle Paul's taught about justification by faith? And this is the one good work a woman can do to... That's not... Of course not. Of course that's not what he's saying. So the question is, well, what is he saying then? Right? Um, I think that um, the Apostle Paul, by using the, the... the image of childbearing, or the reality of childbearing, this is simply the illustration. You see that the Apostle Paul chose to emphasize the way in which a woman um, can really exemplify her her God ordained place and role in life. And, and, it, and, it, and it's the it's the clearest example of a God given distinction between men and women, right? The fact that women can bear children is is clearly um, is demonstrating the fact that God has made men and women different and they each have roles and places in life and and this is just um, the clearest way that the apostle paul clearest example that to make this point now the apostle Paul is not even addressing the the issues of of barrenness right or singleness that would prevent women from having children he's not he's not getting into that he's just saying Through childbearing in general, this is the way in which women um, work out their salvation. This is the way in which they work out their salvation and a salvation that they actually already have, right? Because he's saying they must continue in faith, meaning they already have faith. These are things that the woman is to persevere in, to endure through, and then ultimate consummation of salvation will be there. Um, But the language is no different from, from things like Jesus says. Matthew twenty four thirteen, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is just the way in which women endure through their God-given place in life and in bearing and raising children. Yes, sir.
2: I'm not sure if it's noteworthy, but it would be the difference between but, a woman versus but women. So in the same way as mankind, God uh, still loved the world, talking about the group, this is how the group, um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not sure if that's noteworthy, but, it, but it's talking about not, this is not how an individual woman will be saved, but this is how women in general
0: yeah, women in general. Unarthrous, right? There's no... It's not the woman. Yeah. Which a lot of people have wondered about, you know, the other the question is, what is this referring to um, the birth of the Messiah? A lot of people have historically wondered, like, this is how salvation comes, through the bearing of the child. Right? Let me um,
1: Maybe just... Uh, if I could just maybe add just a word on the whole context of the conversation. Of, yeah. Of uh, women and submission and stuff like that. Yeah. Because in the context of church or in the context of marriage counseling, you know, it's not surprising that you know, as much as maybe a woman will, you know, have a problem or you know, be challenged by the language of submission and, and those types of things. Um, you know, you know as well as I do that from marriage counseling, uh, equally if not more so, uh, usually the problem is not that the woman is failing to submit, but that men are failing to lead. Mm -hmm. And so just because a woman is in the submissive role and the husband's in the leadership role, that's not a de facto plus for the man or something, right? Mm -hmm. Men bear a huge responsibility, and we see the effects of abdication. When men abdicate their God-given role to lead, the disaster that leads to. Mm -hmm. So the, the responsibility is both ways. It's not one is better than the other or lesser none of that you know yeah. uh, we, we we both men and women bear a huge responsibility to 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 be obedient to our god given role like you said you know yeah. but but leadership and abdicating from that leadership role i mean it, i would say it's even maybe more perilous to a to a marriage situation and to the church if men fail to lead
0: yeah yeah i mean i think that's what this chapter i mean just to close that's what this chapter is saying right? He's encouraging the men to lead, as he's going to go on in chapter 3 to say. He's saying they need to do it in a godly way, right? Without wrath, without dissensions. Um, Because look, in in both senses, we can both outwardly um, keep the letter of the law as far as these things, right? I can lead, I can teach, I can preach, I can lead prayers, and I can do all of this with with a heart full of wrath and bitterness and not be glorifying God. I can outwardly keep these Command Just as a woman could outwardly not teach in um, church and be quiet in, the, in these types of ways, that doesn't mean that her heart is submissive. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that she's obeying and glorifying God and, and keeping the apostolic command. So I think, um, you know, clearly we're both being called to, in this chapter in particular, men to lead in godly ways, lead in a way that younger men and even the women are going to want to follow. And the women are called um, to fulfill their role, um, and it's a role that God will, in fact, be pleased with. And I think the problem is, you know, these days, of course, is just the, the reality that it's so countercultural that the word submission is like a cuss word. Like, people are afraid to even say that. But look, Jesus Christ was submissive to the Father in all ways, despite the temptation of Satan to not submit to the Father and to try to exalt himself. Um, and because of that submission, the greatest example, Jesus Christ was exalted and was glorified because he was willing to submit himself, and so the women just need to remember the same thing, that this is pleasing to God. We're not concerned if the culture accepts us. We want to be pleasing to God, and if he said uh, what he desires for us to glorify, and we should do it and, and take comfort in that and know that God receives this as worship, and he's pleased with it, so we're, we're way late. Let me just close and we'll we'll go to service. Well, Father, um, Father, I thank you for our church, Lord. I thank you that these issues that were going on in Ephesus, Lord, I thank you that we're not fighting this level of battle in our church, Lord, that we're not battling false teaching, Lord, that men are not leading wickedly, Lord. We thank you that women are not usurping their roles, Lord, and that We're worshiping in peace together, Lord, and so we thank you for that, Lord. That's all of your grace, Lord, that we're able to worship in peace together today. Lord, bless our service. Bless the singing of hymns to you, Lord. Bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, Lord. May it all bring glory to you and bless our our fellowship, our meal together after service, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Amen.